If you open your Bible to this passage, you will see that the NIV has given it a heading, a heading which says fasting. And uh, if we wanted to, of course, we could bring a very nice little sermon on the issue of fasting. Uh, it seems to be a big issue for some of us. I keep on getting reminding to make sure I watch what I eat and to diet. And the television keeps on telling me that as well. Uh, just on uh, Saturday uh, morning, I was watching the TV and there was an ad there about dieting and uh, about fasting. That's one of the ways of dieting, isn't it, in this world? And uh, they were talking about that in Australia, dieting, uh, people spend about $750 million in that industry. That's amazing, isn't it? So I think we might have an issue with eating and dieting. But is that what this passage is about? That is the question, isn't it? See, we need to understand what Luke is teaching in this gospel at this point. We need to get our teeth into the message. So if it's not about fasting, what is it about? It's about legalism, not fasting, especially man-made traditions. And I'd explain it in the sense of legalism in the sense of not drinking alcohol or dancing. I ran across a, pe a number of people a few years ago who uh, told me with no uncertain terms that drinking alcohol was a sin. And so I had to go away and do a study on the Bible and point out to them that the Bible never says that. It says that drinking uh, alcohol to the extent of getting drunk is a sin but it doesn't say that drinking alcohol is a sin. But those independent Baptists were saying that drinking alcohol is a sin. Uh, who, who doesn't know that lots of Baptists say that uh, you can't dance? Well, does the Bible say that also? Let's turn to the passage before us which is Luke chapter 5, verses 33, and I'm going to read up to 39, although the sermon goes even further, to six, chapter 6, verse 11. So 5.33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of an old, a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. What's going on here? Well, that's important for us to pick up on. What is actually going on? In the Old Testament, you'll read that the law requires fasting once a year. 
that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law required it at least once a week and possibly twice on a Monday and a Thursday. What's going on in this passage? What is Luke drawing our attention to? He has one purpose in Luke, and we read that in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. And his purpose is that we may know with certainty the certainty of the things that you have taught. You might ask, what things? Well, the things that Luke goes on to talk about. See, Luke, in essence, addresses the one big question, doesn't he? Who is Jesus? And that fits with our sermon series on getting to grips with Jesus because that is addressing who is Jesus. The early chapters of Luke make it clear that he was the expected Messiah, the one who would sit on David's throne and rule over his kingdom. As we read from Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, this Davidic kingdom is the one God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, to go to King David's heir. It is mentioned many times, but perhaps the most well-known is Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is that heir, that heir of David. Because of that, that's why we read Luke telling us in chapter 4, verse 43, that preaching the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, was his major thrust, his major point, his major teaching. For the Pharisees who were under Roman occupation, their desire was released from bondage to the Romans and they hoped and desired that the Messiah would do just that. But Jesus points out that they're in a much bigger bondage, namely to sin. That is why we see actually a cycle happening throughout Luke's gospel. We see Jesus doing miracles and then dealing with sin and the Pharisees and the religious leaders objecting to that. See, the really big question going on here is, who can enter the kingdom of God? For the Pharisees, it was only those who obeyed not just God's laws, but their added laws their traditions. For example, as we read here, only those who fasted at least once a week could enter the kingdom of God. That's what was going on in their brain. They assumed the legalist was the one with the best chance to enter the kingdom of God. Whereas Jesus is saying, he who is an outsider, someone like a leper, someone like a tax collector, a thief, a traitor, is welcome to him and he deals with their sin. And we know from the gospel later on that Jesus died on the cross for that sin. He paid the penalty. In the end, rituals like the Pharisees followed, perhaps good things, but these things don't connect you with God. Only Jesus does that. Again and again, we see as here, Jesus claims greater authority than their traditions. And so we read our passage today. It starts off in a rather unusual way. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I've said, they're almost saying, look over here, there's a shiny object. 
That's what they're getting at in verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so did the disciples of the Pharisee. Let's talk about fasting and prayer. But what had Jesus just spoken to them about in the previous verse, in verse 32? He says, I have come to call sinners to repentance. You see, they don't want to deal with that issue. That's a bit close to the bone. Let's not talk about that. Look, over there, there's a nice shiny object. Let's look at that, not this. That's what they're saying, in effect. It's misdirection. It's just like our favourite politicians do when they get interviewed. Do they answer the question? No. They go off in some other direction, never answering the question. It's one that the media uses all the time. They never give a direct answer to the question. However, if you read this, Jesus doesn't either. He doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, I was just talking about sin and repentance and you want to talk about fasting? But no, Jesus is much better than we are at this. Of course he is. He knows what is in man, as we've already been told in Luke's Gospel. He turns this misdirection on its head. He goes along with them and he says, hey, hang on. We know that you don't want to deal with sinners and repentance, but instead he talks about a bridegroom in verses 34 and 35. That's an interesting thing. Why does he talk about that? It's not a parable he's giving here at that point in verses 34 and 35. It's an illustration, a teaching, which they're supposed to grasp and go with and understand. He takes an illustration from everyday life, but he fills it out with something far more deeper than we'd expect. Because his point is, in the Old Testament, God is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom of Israel. The Pharisees knew that. And he's saying, when the bridegroom is with you, you do not fast. So when God is with you, you don't say, hey, just hang on a minute there. I think I'll go off and fast. That's quite inappropriate, isn't it? It's wrong. Instead, when the bridegroom is with you, it's a time for joy. It's a time for joy, not fasting. Because if you look at those verses very carefully, you'll know I'm right here because of the second verse. Because it says, when the bridegroom goes away, then they'll fast. He's talking about his coming death. You see, when people normally get married, you don't have the marriage and then suddenly the bridegroom nicks off and you never see him again. That just doesn't normally happen. But that's exactly what those verses are talking about. He goes on then to give them a parable in the next verse. In the next slide we'll see that. He tells them a parable about patching holes in old clothes and about new wine and wineskins. His point here is that you don't wreck a new garment to patch up the old garment because the new patch won't match the old one. You cannot join the new to the old, patching up a hole here and a rip there. See, the law is good, but if I put it this way, legalism itself was a, has made really big holes in the old garment of the law. 
the traditions actually make the holes bigger in the law. What you need to do is delight in the new, in Jesus. Delight because it is in Jesus who is the one who deals with sin. Whereas the law in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, all it did was point out sin. Romans tells you that. But it didn't deal with sin itself. Only Jesus does that, doesn't he? But they just don't get that. As we see from the following Sabbath controversies in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, they just don't get it. They miss it completely. See, they look at harvesting, which is work, according to their work, their rules. But when you look at Exodus, the law there, the fifth commandment about not working, having rest and not working, it wasn't as what they said because they are talking about their traditions, how they expanded the understanding of what work was so that they made sure they never broke God's fifth commandment by not even plucking a bit of grain and rubbing it in your hands and eating it. For them, that was harvesting the grain, which is ridiculous. Because if you go back to where God gave that law, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, it makes clear there that harvesting is with a sickle. It's not rubbing your fingers together. There's a big difference going on. They couldn't have got it more wrong. See, they were caught up in their traditions. But it is God in Jesus who brings grace and mercy. His is not legalism. His is not men's traditions. See how Jesus replies in verse 3. He starts off, have you not read? In other words, about King David. Now, that's an interesting point there. He says, it's not good enough just to debate your rabbi's opinions on the word of God. You have to actually deal with what God's word says, not your extra extra rules and traditions. It's very important. He draws attention to how David and his followers ate the consecrated temple bread in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. If you go back there and have a look at it, It's a rather interesting situation. What's going on there? David is running away from King Saul. But David has been anointed, set apart by God to be king. And he's under threat from King Saul. And he and his men need food and provisions. And so they go and get bread from the priest. And he doesn't have any of the normal unconsecrated bread left. So he gives them some of the consecrated bread that is used in the temple. In 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 to 6, David does this in the place of Nob, which is actually about only one mile away from Jerusalem. Baker's Delight, just down the road from Jerusalem, who provides the bread for the temple. Consecrated bread, special bread, set aside. And you think, how could he do that? And if you read 1 Samuel chapter 22, you find that the priest actually inquired of the Lord first if he should do that. So it's all above board. And this is a thorn in the side of the Pharisees, isn't it, when you think about it? They can't object to this. 
This is in Scripture. This is an instant of the law being set aside for a good reason. David's men were hungry. Isn't that interesting? So they can't object. They can't say, well, you know, uh, no, he did, they did the wrong thing. And on top of that, we're told, as I said in 1 Samuel 22, that the priest inquired of the Lord. He got God's approval for doing that. So David's men were hungry. We know that David himself was anointed, as I've said, of God. But there is another in Luke's Gospel that we're talking about, who is God's anointed, which is Jesus. That's what Luke chapter 4, 18 tells us, that Jesus is God's anointed. He is David's heir. So there's a parallel already there between David and Jesus. They are both anointed. As it stands, Jesus' argument is a slam dunk against the Pharisees. For the law they love, they love it, is set aside in this situation. But his second point clinches the argument against them. He declares in verse 5 that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And from what we've already read in Luke's Gospel, the word Son of Man, the title, is used for Jesus himself. Jesus takes it to himself. He is saying he is master of the Sabbath. He is in a special relationship to the Sabbath. He has authority over it. The point is that in Jesus, the Son of Man, is he who is authorised to determine what is right and good to happen on the Sabbath. We see the point, isn't it, for us, of getting to grips with Jesus. Who is he? He is God himself who has authority over all things. But it doesn't just stop there, does it? The Pharisees continue to have issues with Jesus about the Sabbath. They just won't accept his answers or what Scripture says. Because then comes the second Sabbath controversy in chapter 6, verses um, one, 6 to 11, about the man with the withered hand. And when you reflect on that, he had a withered hand, one withered hand. Jesus could have waited for another day to heal him. He could have said, well, you know, come back and see me tomorrow, like, like sometimes the doctor says, you know, he's going to think about it. Come back tomorrow and I'll heal you then. But he doesn't do that, doesn't he? Because verse 9 is the focal point of this explanation. As we read there, it says, it's about to do good or evil, to save life or to destroy it. Of course, we know that the word save here in the New Testament has a much fuller meaning than merely spiritual salvation. It means about the wholeness of the person being made whole again, spiritually, physically, mentally with God. If the main point of verse 9 is that it's a black or white issue. That's what it's telling us. It's about good versus evil, black and white, saving life or destroying. It couldn't get further opposites from each other. But you might ask, healing a withered hand isn't saving life versus destroying it, is it? 
However, it can be seen from Jesus' point of view, it is good as opposed to doing evil. In the end, Jesus is refusing to see the Sabbath as a litmus test for faithfulness. Or in the Pharisees' idea, this is more to the point, keeping the traditions and the law at all costs. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, keeping the law and traditions at all costs allows you to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying no. That doesn't suffice. Only he does. So what have we understood today? If you think there's another way of entering God's kingdom, you're not listening to Jesus. If you think you can be a good person, that doesn't get you there. If you think keeping traditions in life, I don't murder people, that's a good tradition, that won't get you there either. If you think coming to church on a Sunday will get you into heaven, don't get me wrong, it's a good thing to come to church, but it won't get you into the kingdom of God. If you think taking communion when it's available will get you right with God, it won't. Only Jesus does. He is the one who deals with sin. That's exactly at the point where we need to get right and to get grips to grips with Jesus. A few weeks ago, Toby encouraged us to read God's word. But what we need to see today is we need to really think about it, don't we? We need to reflect upon it, dig deep, rather than just flipping through the pages and making sure I've read all the, the words. So you could read the NIV and say, well, the heading here is about fasting. Well, you know, I better watch what I eat. I better set aside a bit of time for spirituality and have a tradition of fasting every so often, just so I'm right with God. Nothing wrong in that, but it doesn't make you right with God. That's the point. That's the point of Luke's gospel. He's talking about man-made traditions which you think will get you right with God, and they won't. Actually, next week we'll look a bit closer at those who will enter the kingdom of God. In chapter 6, verses 12 to 26, you might like to go home and read that this afternoon. Think about what we've been talking about today and maybe you'll see it again reflected in those verses. I think you will because it is hammered home in those verses. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you speak through your word, that we hear the great message that it's not our traditions which will make us right with you, but Jesus alone and what he has done, the one who deals with sin, our rebellion against you. We thank you for that and we pray that we will live to glorify your name and to please you in all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.